All right, we like to keep things tight here, so we got 60 seconds. 90 seconds of awkwardness would just be abuse. So, uh, well, good morning. My name is Chris. I'm, I'm one of the pastors here uh, with Sam, with Nate, with uh, Randy, and with Mark. Um, and as Sam said, we are in week two of Advent. And so this is a season of the year where we are anticipating this celebration of the arrival of King Jesus um, into history, and that is what Christmas is about. And so our series for Advent is entitled Give. And so while we are talking about money, the series isn't specifically about money, but it's about the character of God and and who he is and how he's given to us and how we are to respond to him as givers. And so last week um, we saw from Sam's sermon that God is generous, and so our response is to give sacrificially. And so Sam started in, in Genesis 1. And we saw that God was a creator who created everything, and he was the first giver, and he blessed all of humanity with dominion over animals, over birds of the air, over plants, and over resources with a purpose. He gave for a purpose, and that was, he says, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, and to subdue it. And so we saw that every good gift is from God, and all of creation exists for one purpose, and that is to show God's greatness. So, God is not only generous in his material provision for us, but we also saw that he's rich in mercy and grace that he grants to us. Now, in in contrast, we are designed uh, as his people to be givers and to be dependent on God as a father. Yet, our first parents gave into this well-marketed lie that declaring independence from God would ultimately make them more happy. And so sin enters the world as as humanity kind of tells God that his generosity is not sufficient. So countless generations of humanity have been unsatisfied with what the world has had to offer apart from God. And so we've become discontent. We've become ungrateful. uh, We've become even miserly the richer that we've become. And so while we're building our kingdoms and we're increasing our standard of living generation by by generation, at the same time, it seems like we are decreasing our standard of giving and generosity to those around us. But that's the world. As Christians, if you call yourself one of of God's, God's people, we are both charged by Jesus and called to respond to Jesus for, for what Jesus has already given of himself. And so we become generous givers of our time, of our talent, and of our, our money, of our resources, of our, of our treasure. And so we saw last week that if giving is truly to reflect the character of God, um, and to be more than mere guilt offerings, or for us to just hold on to our stuff with entitlement, then our giving has to be generous, it has to be intentional, it has to be voluntary or volitional, and it has to be enthusiastic. If you take out any leg from that table or from that chair, you will fall down and you will pervert your relationship with the Creator and with His creation. And so this week we're moving from God giving generously to looking deeply into how He gives intentionally. And so we're going to spend some time specifically looking through the plot of Scripture at God's intentionality about being with His people and how His people are to relate to Him. We will see that we are intentional about what matters most to us, which is not often God. And then we'll pick up where Sam left off in Luke chapter 12, and we'll review Jesus' clear teaching about what it means to be an intentional steward of his resources and to be faithful disciples. And then we'll close with looking at uh, specifically how Jesus was intentional about suffering for our salvation and for his or by His glorious grace. And so, as we look at the Bible, and you grab your Bible, and you, you read it, and you, you start to see this plot of Scripture, you'll see that God is intentional. And I use that word not assuming that you know what it means, but what that, that means is that every action God takes is performed with awareness. It's done deliberately. It's done consciously. It's done on purpose. Now, we may not always know what God's purposes are, And I don't even presume that if we knew what all of God's purposes are, that we would agree with them. But we can rest knowing that God is ultimately knowledgeable, that he's ultimately powerful, and that he's ultimately loving. 
And so even a casual reading of the Bible that reveals that from before creation all the way to the end of the book, to the end of days, God's intention is to be with his people. And he's both specific and intentional in in how he gives to his people, how he plans for his people, and how he relates to his people. And so the Bible opens up with God as the creator, giving his his, uh, people all things. Like we said, there's that rebellion, and then it comes this promise that God gives, uh, that, hey, I'm promising you, I have a plan through the family of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to intentionally redeem all of creation. And we saw in, in Exodus, or you'll see in Exodus, that God is a deliverer who gives freedom from slavery in Egypt to his people. And then he gives them intentionally ten commandments so they can understand who God is and who, how they're to respond. You see, that there's even like a dozen chapters in Exodus where he gives out specifics of what the holy tabernacle is supposed to look like, which is just a fancy word for like Hebrew camping gear that uh, God kind of has when they're out in the desert. And, and he gives um, very specifics as well. And this is what I think is awesome for us. He even gives specific to the congregation, to the gathering of God's people on how they are going to, to pool their resources and contribute to make this happen. Already, one book in, God's talking about tithing and offering and giving. And then we see in, in Leviticus that God is a legislature. And, and he's not a wicked one, uh, like we might be more familiar with, uh, but he's a good legislator. And he gives hundreds of laws for us to relate to God, relate to his creation, and relate to people. And then you come along to this book called Numbers. Like if there's any question that God cares about details and that God's in some way an accountant of all things, he names a book Numbers. It's basically just a spreadsheet. You read the whole book, it's just one big Excel file where he's like, okay, here's how the military draft is going to go. Here's how everybody's seating arrangements are going to be through the camp. And here's your marching orders as you go through the wilderness. God is very specific. He accounts for every detail. He even gives them daily food and constant correction. And then his people kind of wander through the desert. And and then God, in Joshua, God the general, is a strategic planner who gives his people victory and ultimately grants them access to the promised land. You'd think it would be over, but then we get to Judges, right? And we've spent a whole year in Judges looking about how God gives uh, uh, Judges to show mercy to save his people from their own unfaithfulness. And then we get through this period of the judges and you come to First and Second Samuel where you see God as a priest and he gives his people Samuel as a high priest to, to be a bridge between God and his people and to say, hey, there's a king coming, Saul. There's a king coming, David. And here's what faithful worship to God is going to look like. He does that for a purpose. And then you come to, to First Kings and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles and we see that God, as the king of kings, intentionally grants his people human kings so they can see the folly of chasing after men's kingdoms rather than the kingdom of God. And even in 1 Kings, you see this uh, several chapters where he is specifically laying out intentional plans for what his temple is going to look like. He's moving from a tent to a temple, and he's detailed about the furniture and about what people are going to wear and about the decorations. God cares about details. Because man and even God's people chased after their own kingdom, God then intentionally sells them back into slavery and into exile and scatters them around the known world until one of God's faithful servants, who is actually a servant or a steward or an assistant to a pagan king, his heart breaks for God's people. His heart breaks for the city of God. And so that king, or sorry, that servant, what does he do? He brings that king a budget report. And a purchase order. And Nehemiah says, hey, king, I need, uh, here's my budget for rebuilding Jerusalem. Here's the purchase order where I need to have all of your forests and all of your resources so that we can rebuild. So God kind of has his home, own um, home and garden network show, you know, rebuilding Jerusalem on, on Wednesdays at 8. And, uh, and they just kind of fix everything back up. And so, again, you'd think things would be great, but, but instead, you know, God's people continue to rebel. We're given the Psalms as a gift from God, to see that God is a musician and a poet. Yes, he, he plans, but he's also creative. And so he gives us intentionally songs so we can see God's hearts, his emotion, uh, and so that we can relate to him on that level as well. 
He gives us a gift in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, in Song of, of Solomon, Song of Songs, that we see God is wise. And he grants wisdom in how we are to work, how we are to live, and how we are to love because he wants those things to go well for us because he cares about our joy. And then lastly, in the Old Testament, we see that God speaks intentionally. And he speaks intentionally through men called prophets. And he gives his people prophets as a gift to remind his people that his intentions from the beginning, his character from the beginning hasn't changed, and that there will be a Savior uh, will be given to fulfill all those promises that he made back in Genesis. And Isaiah, Sam read at the beginning, and in several other places, uh, all point to Jesus. Sam read Isaiah 9, and in Isaiah 7, God says, uh, in verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, showing you the plan. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall be, call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. He's reminding the plan is for God to be with his people. Isaiah then responds later in, in, in chapter 25 and says, O oh Lord, you are my God, I will exalt you, I will praise your name. Why? For you've done wonderful things. Plans formed from old, faithful and sure. Isaiah is praising the fact that God is an intentional planner. So other prophets, um, Ezekiel and Daniel, kind of talk about the restoration of all things and point um, God's people to, to the book of Revelation, really, where we see that this whole plot of Scripture culminates with this holy city. And in those books and in Revelation, there's almost a civil engineering plan for what the city of God is going to look like, what the roads look like, how the rivers will look like, how people eat, how they react and relate. God is a planner. And so the time of the prophets closes and begins a season of Advent where they anticipate God's return for 400 years their season of Advent lasts. Right? If you've read C.S. Lewis's Narnia Chronicle, it's, it's, it's always winter, never Christmas. It's this dark time. And the last words God gives his people before they are to wait for Jesus' coming is in the book of Malachi. So if you would, turn your Bibles with me to Malachi. Chapter 3, if you don't know where that is, it's kind of in the middle of your Bible. Just move a little bit more to the right or go to Matthew in the New Testament and just go back a, uh, a page or two. We'll be in chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. I'm not going to give a lot of commentary on this. We're just going to listen to God's hard words and take them for what they are. Starting in verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you've turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? He responds, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. For I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soul, or of your soil, rather. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is the last thing God says to his people before Jesus comes. And it's not an accident. His last words to his people are about intentional giving. And he couldn't make it clear this contrast between his unchanging character, about his intentions to bless his people, and, and how that compares to our intentions to be faithless and to selfishly hold back from what God has already given us. And so I want you to grasp this plot of Scripture that from, from garden to desert to city, from, from tents to tabernacles to temples, 
from the promise to Abraham, to the promised lands, to the promise of the coming of Jesus, to the promise of Jesus' return, that God's intentional about his glory and about his joy, excuse me, about our joy, because those things matter to him. He plans for them because they're important to him. God is a creator. He is creative. He does beautiful, majestic things. But how he is creative is in the framework of plans and systems and sciences and intentionality. God's a planner. And because, transition from from God to specifically more ourselves, because we are made and created in God's image, we are intentional about the things that matter to us. And so when we plan or, or, or when we're intentional about anything, we are actually um, living our lives in God's own image. And yet, when we fail to plan, when we fail to be intentional, when we plan for our glory instead of His, that's called sin. And so, at, when, even when we look specifically at our financial stewardship, it's a big word, we'll define that a little bit, but when we look at how we manage our finances as a government, right, or as a society, or even individually, it's often sorely lacking because we're broken as a people, both collectively uh, and individually. And so sometimes we act foolishly, but there's no question that we are absolutely intentional about the things that we think are important. And most of the time, sadly, that's, that's not God. And so I want you to, to, to just think about how you as a family, you as an individual, and us as a society use our money because the reality is we make and commit large sums of money that we either have or that we hope we'll have down the road by getting into debt for things that we think are, are absolutely paramountly important. And so in our society, we've become so comfortable with making massive economic and financial commitments that sadly we don't even put as much thought to them as we should. And so we do things um, uh, intentionally with our income, right? We pay bills once or twice a month, right? And as we write checks or we do it online or commit sums of money to those, we are spending more money every week or every two weeks than most of the people in the world have for the entire year. We don't think much of it. We, we do things easily like, like getting cell phone contracts or signing up for, for, for cable plans for, for cell phones or cable for, for, for up to two years. Sometimes committing uh, you know, 500 bucks, sometimes up to 1000 if you get both for, for a couple years. Sorry, $5,000 rather. Any renters here, right? If you're a renter and in this market, you, you've signed a lease for, for a year or more. You've committed $10,000 to $20,000 to say, I'll, I'll pay that. And, and you don't even think much about it. We, we get loans for cars for, for anywhere from three to five years, anywhere from a few thousand dollars to thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000, depending on the size and the width and the depth of the truck, right? Um, we commit large sums of money, sometimes even more than we make in an entire year to something like that. We... Uh, you know, next, next month, my, my dad, I think, will come back up again, and we'll go to the boat show. And if you want to, you can come with us, and uh, we can get you signed on to, to buy a boat for a 15-year payment plan. Right? You can go to the boat show. 15 years. Commit, commit a decade and a half to a boat. Right? There's lots of things you can do. And if you own a home, then you're signed, you've signed a mortgage for 15 to, to 40 years between a quarter of a million and half a million dollars you're going to spend. We just consider it normal. We're intentional about those things because all those things matter to us. Well, we have to have a place to live, right? We have to have food to eat and clothes on our back. And, and to a certain extent, we need transportation, right? Did some, we looked at, we'll look at a lot of statistics, and one of them is you know, gasoline. At $3.50 a gallon, the average family will spend over $4,000 a year on gas. Whether you have a new car, used car, whatever, with insurance, with depreciation, with tires and oil changes and things like that, uh, AAA estimates that um, 15,000 miles a year of driving costs uh, you $9,000 per car. Beyond purchase price. Okay. We spend large sums of money. Okay, those are all things we can say, okay, those are just needs. This is part of life. 
Okay, let's get into some other details that maybe we think are necessities. Caffeine. Okay, just think about caffeine. I hope you had some because we're talking a lot of numbers today. I need you to stay awake uh, through this, right? But, but caffeine, the average American worker, average, meaning some more, some less, spends 20 bucks a week on coffee or, or mochas or rock star energy drinks or whatever, sodas, whatever your cup of tea is. Okay, that doesn't sound like much. That's $1,100 a year on average, Okay. So I had one guy get really mad when I mentioned that uh, earlier in the year, and he came up to me, what are you saying? We can't have coffee? We can't, you know, can't spend on that? I'm like, no, coffee's fine. You've clearly had some. Maybe decaf for you next time. You're a little fired up. I'd appreciate you dialing it down a notch, right? So we, we spend on coffee. Your gold card in your wallet from Starbucks says so. Um, all right. Pets. Anybody have a cat? Okay. Wicked animals. All right. Um, you have a cat? a year. A dog, worth much more, $1,500 a year. That's how much the average dog costs. I love my pets. They're my babies. No, I'll just have some. We don't don't have pets. We just have babies. I don't need anything else in my house that poops. Um, Okay, so it's Christmas time, right? So um, the average American adult uh, will spend $700 at Christmas. So if you're married, that's $1,400 on average. Is spent during Christmas time, right? We love Christmas, sure. Cell phones, I mentioned those. The average cell phone costs um, $600 a year to operate. That's a dumb phone, okay? Just plain old, dumb, Zach Morris brick phone from Saved by the Bell, okay? Right? We don't have those. We have smartphones. We're, we're sometimes dumb people, but we have smartphones, right? And so um, we have iPhones, Right? I love my iPhone. It's got an app from Damascus Road. You can download that. I plug that every week, right? Um, $1,900 a year with equipment, service, data, all that. $1,900 a year, okay? Hold on to that one. Some of you are like, I can't give to church, but man, $1,900 for the iPhone? All right, we'll see where your idols are at, okay? As well, just basic entertainment and, and eating away from home, eating out. Both of those separately, $2,500 each. Meaning we're spending $500 just to, sorry, $5,000 a year just to not be bored and to eat crappy food outside of our house. Okay, five grand. And so I want you to hold on to those numbers. I probably should have done a spreadsheet up there, but then your eyes would have just glazed over. But um, let's compare that to what Christians in America, so that's America, average Americans, all those stats, Christians in America give to their church. So the average Christian in America, and I say Christian with with quotes, but church member, 50% half give zero throughout the course of the year. Half of all people that say they love Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords and loves baby Jesus at Christmas and Jesus on the cross at Easter give nothing. A third of all church members give less than 2% of their income. I did the math on that. It works out to about... Um, Less than $1,000 a year, which means, practically speaking, 85%, sorry, 86% of all American Christians that say they love Jesus give less to their church than the average American gives to Starbucks. Switch that around, meaning 14%, only 14% of Christians give more than $1,000 a year, or more, sorry, more than 2%, okay? When you look back at those numbers that I said, I want you to ask yourself specifically, do you love the bride of Christ? Do you love the church? Do you, do you love the church as much financially as you love your pet? Or you love your iPhone? Or you love coffee or your truck or whatever else, whatever expensive hobbies or whatever extra um, fashionable clothing you, you need to have? And those, again, I want to be clear, those are not evil, wicked things to spend money on. God gives everything as a gift. But when you rank the top 25 poll in your heart of spending, is the church or is giving out to anybody else besides yourself even on that list? And where does it rank? And, and, and so I, this is a huge problem with giving in the church. I don't mean our church necessarily, but, but it's gotten worse in the last decade. Okay. The percentage of self-described Christians that say they tithe 
which is actually giving 10% of their income to the, the local church before they, they give to other organizations, was 14% in 2001, okay? Stick with me. Ten years later, 2011, 6%. What that means is there are less than half as many people tithing just ten years later than there was in 2001. Okay, this is a, I don't want to say a crisis in the church, but if we were talking about that as divorce statistics or, or pornography or, or, or parenting issues or, or anything like that, we'd have sermons about it each and every single week because we'd say there's a problem. So this is a conversation that is long overdue and, and needs to happen. And so I want, that's, it's sad when I think about those numbers. There's some encouragement because I want you to consider what giving looks like here at Damascus Road. Okay, I, I oversee the, the finance team. With, well, we have uh, several members on that team that, that are faithful. Um, and so giving as a church, we have access to these numbers because, all right, that's Christians. Those are, those are people in those other churches. We're, we're Damascus Road. I'm sure we do things better and differently, right? Okay, so I looked at some numbers. As a church, by God's grace, we're better than average. That's great because average really stinks. Okay, so, so, but we're slightly better than average. And so what it looks like for us is that there's still room for growth individually and collectively, but of the people who, who are members here, okay, that call this place home, that say they're, they're part of this church, roughly 25% don't give at all, okay? Hey, we're twice as good as the rest of the church, I guess, right? Okay, but, and hear me, we're talking a lot about money right here, but um, if you're new or you don't know Jesus, we are not interested in your money, Okay, we, we don't, we don't, that's not what we're, we're, we're here for, what we're about. We want you to meet Jesus. So if you're new, welcome. You picked a fun week to be here. Um, if, uh, if you're not a Christian, again, we don't want your money. We want you to meet Jesus. But if you're not either of those, and you're at that zero, we should probably have a conversation as to why. I want, again, I want this to be a conversation starter, not, not a conversation Ender. And so, uh, okay, that's 25%. Another 25% uh, of our givers um, give less than a dollar a day. Okay, so Damascus Road to you is just a starving orphan in Africa that you saw an infomercial about in the middle of the night. Okay? So that means, practically, half the, the church, half of our church, gives about $350 or less a year. Now, for those that give, and, and, and those, that half counts, because we all average things out, um, but the average giver within in our church, um, average family, I should say, um, gives, um, where are we at here? Uh, sorry, gives $2,800 a year. That's generous. That works out to $235, $240 a month. Now, if you're a single adult or whatever, the average per adult is about $1,700 or $140 a month. So ask yourself right now, when you think of your bills in that range, what are you spending your money on in, in that range? So us as elders, I want you to know as well, I don't, and this isn't a, a guilt trip or anything. I just want, I'm just giving you information. You let the Holy Spirit work your heart however you want. This is just information. But as, as elders, um, we, we want to make sure that we're leading in our conduct and we're also leading in our giving. And so the, the, the elders here at Damascus Road are, are myself, Sam, uh, Randy Loveless, uh, Nate Greenland, and Mark Hoxo. Okay. Our incomes... Uh, because we share this with information with one another, um, we are right within the median uh, for Snohomish County, the average for Snohomish County. So we are average earners okay, for our household incomes. Um, we have roughly one earner per family. Some, some uh, wives do work a little bit here and there. Um, on average, our families have four kids. Okay? We took that be fruitful and multiply, and we just own that one. That's our uh, elder life verse there, okay, so we're above average on number of kids, okay, but we all have mortgages, we all have other debts or other bills that they're working on, we've all had job losses or, or career changes, we've all had medical bills, uh, we've all had various life circumstances, uh, our, all of our finances are not always perfect, but we endeavor to be faithful in this, and so um, I, I just want you to know that we are average, okay, so we're not uh, different in terms of our incomes. The average elder giving monthly is between $500 and $700 a month. 
which works out to, on the low end, 6000 a year up to almost eighty-five or 9000 a year that the average elder's family is giving uh, regularly, cheerfully, and sacrificially to Damascus Road Church. There's a lot of things we could spend our money on, but we love the bride, and so we, we, we give, again, because, because we love the church. So I want to ask you, what does giving look like you for specifically? Right? And as we consider tithing or giving, I want you to understand it as a form of worship because you literally are assigning worth with dollars to things you think are important. But giving um, is a way of proclaiming that we have no other God before God in heaven. And where our parents, Adam and Eve, declared independence from God and his generosity, when you are giving 10% of your income and, and keeping 90% to, for your own uses, right? You are declaring your dependence on God for all things. And so the Bible's instruction is, to us is to give. Our tithes and offerings should be out of our best and out of our first fruits to God. And so just practically speaking, if you give or when you give, which check is it? Is it the first check of the month as you start getting your income? Or is it kind of towards the end when you're like, all right, what do we have left? And again, when you look at your bills, besides your mortgage or your rent, where is giving in relation to that? Is it, is it down there with, with cell phones and coffee? Is it up there with trucks and cars? Where, where's it at? These are real conversations you need to be having with yourself or with your spouse or with your friends. Um, again, if you're not sure, just, just look at your own bank account. Where are all the transactions coming from? Where are the big numbers going out to? That'll tell you what you, wor- or what you worship. So we need to look specifically at, at Jesus' clear teaching. We'll do that in Luke chapter 12. So if you would, please turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Sam, last week, got um, the beginning of this chapter. We're picking it up here in verse 35. Jesus says, Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table. And he will come and serve them. And if he comes in the second watch or the third and finds them awake, Blessed are those servants. But know this, if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You must also be ready for the Son of Man, Jesus coming back, is coming at an hour you do not expect. When we look at these verses, verse 35 literally translates, gird your loins, which in today's uh, vernacular is put your cup on. And he says that, Jesus does, because he says being a disciple means you might get kicked. Okay, so you need to be prepared. You need to be ready for action. You're in a battle. You, there's, there's work to be done. And so he says this because, like I said, there is hard work. And so you're going, he says, need resources for longevity. He says keep the lamps burning. That requires planning. And so we have to see ourselves not as masters, but as servants of the master, who are called to be prepared and to intentionally plan for extended seasons of ministry so that when we meet Jesus face to face at the end of our lives, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Come recline at the table and I will serve you. It's a beautiful picture. He's saying there's, there's eternal rewards for, for being a faithful servant. And so Jesus is telling his disciples, if you're going to be a disciple, you have to actually be disciplined in different aspects of your life. Apparently, that's not an option. And so he's reminding them that everything we have belongs to God. And so he calls them a steward. Now, again, that's a word we're not too familiar with in our culture. But a steward is someone who understands, like I said, that everything we have belongs to God. A steward does not own anything, but he is a servant who makes his master a prophet and he manages it for his servant's glory. And so faithful stewards as well, Jesus says, they're not asleep. They're awake. They are actually paying attention to how they're spending their time, how they're spending their money, how they're spending our resources, and doing so more effectively. And so one reason I think that we fail to be generous or fail to give at all is because we are just asleep on the job. 
We don't think about how we spend our time. We don't think about how we spend our money or how we spend even the talents that God's given us. He gives us years of work and a career, and we just don't have any intentionality for for how we're going to make a profit on that or how we're going to to rise up and glorify God by by doing more and more in our jobs. Planning is, is apparently something that's important to God because he doesn't want our lamps to run out. He wants to make sure that we are prepared to weather a storm. And so to, to paraphrase this, uh, the, the great Christian finance guru, Dave Ramsey, right? I can't believe I made it three quarters of the way through this sermon without mentioning Dave Ramsey. Um, to paraphrase him, if, if, if you look at what God has given you to manage as a business that he has put you in as the CEO of, would you, would you hire you? Would you give yourself a raise because you're doing well? Would you give yourself more resources or would you maybe put yourself on probation because you're not managing things well? Or would you just fire you because, man, you're just making a wreck of everything that God has given you? Our issue isn't necessarily one of resources. It's one of how we are using the resources that God has already given us. So we continue on in Luke uh, chapter 12, going to verse 41. Peter asks Jesus, Peter says, Lord, um, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom, is, uh, whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master's delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserves a beating, will receive a light beating. Everyone who much was given, of him much will be required. And from him, to whom they have entrusted much, they will demand the more. Right? We always read this at Christmas time, right? This is a happy Christmas verse. Right? Last week, Sam gets uh, flowers of the field and birds of the air, and I get, you know, Jesus going soprano style on one of his servants. Right? But there's, there's a lesson here in this, and I, and, I, and I love Peter's question at the beginning. Lord, is, is this teaching for, for us, or is it for everybody else? Right, because we're Peter. We do that. As soon as there's any sort of teaching that comes up against our personal experiences or challenges our sense of individual entitlement, we just kind of say, okay, God, that's for everybody else, right? The legal defense team in our head starts going, and we just start looking around for loopholes uh, for anything that Jesus says, it says, oh, this doesn't apply to us. So Jesus says, well, it's, it's for all of my servants, and let me tell you four different categories of servants. And so let's, let's be really clear that everything, excuse me, let's be really clear. I don't want us to minimize or compartmentalize different aspects of our life and assume that God only cares how we worship him through reading the Bible or through prayer or through our church attendance or through occasionally being nice to people. Because the reality is, um, where the world will tell us the devil's in the details, the fact is God is in the details. Because God has given us every day we have, every breath we have, every dollar that comes through our bank accounts is all from God. So he cares about everything. Right? It's a fallacy to say, as a church here, we, we, we just care about your money. No, like God, we care about every aspect of your entire life. We want so much more than your money. Jesus wants so much more than your money. He wants your entire life. And so he lays out what it actually means to be a steward. And so we need to ask ourselves, is this sobering enough to consider the fact that God cares about every little detail of our lives. And so Jesus outlines these four types of stewards, and I want us to consider which, which one are you. So the first one that Jesus says is, is faithful and wise. 
That's a goal, I, w- I would hope. But these people, they live in the reality we describe that, that God is the owner of all. And so they seek to be faithful because first and foremost, their loyalty and devotion is not to themselves, but is to the master. I'm going to confess that I've watched an episode of Downton Abbey. One, okay. But Downton Abbey, there are the masters and then there's all the servants. Those servants care more about the masters than themselves. I don't know the rest of the plot. Don't email me or talk to me about it because I'm not interested. Um, okay. But they possess enough wisdom paired with a heart that cares about the master to actually carry out his commands. And in doing so, they, these faithful and wise servants are actually blessings to other servants. God entrusts them with resources and food and whatnot to, to help the other servants do their job better. So they are not just blessed, but they are a blessing. And they pair God's uh, instruction with, 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 with actually living it out. If you ask yourself, wow, I'm, or, or say to yourself, that's not really me, then you need to ask yourself, where is your heart? Is your devotion to God first and foremost, or is it to yourself or to something else? And so he then talks about this, this, this next aspect of, of a wicked and selfish servant. See, Jesus, like I said, has gone from birds and flowers to this dark turn. And he starts talking about these people who claim to be servants of the king. They claim to be Christians, but they have no actual fear or respect or devotion to their master. And so they have assumed that blessings from God can be enjoyed without any accountability to God. And so they start to think, huh. There's, there's no actual consequences for my actions anymore because the master's absent. And so they become selfish. And they start using things and people, excuse me, they start using people to love themselves, using God to love themselves. When God has called them to use things and money to love people and to love God. They've got it just backwards. But yet Jesus is clear, there is a time of judgment, the master will come back, and he says, I'm going to hack them to pieces and put them with the unfaithful, in verse 46. That means I'm putting them with the people that don't know, love, serve, or confess Jesus. That is serious. Apparently Jesus takes our sin financially and in stewardship incredibly, deadly, serious. And so, we come to the next servant, who in this one he says is, is knowledgeable, but wholly unresponsive. So this is, this is the Christian or the, the servant who doesn't lack for knowledge. They've been instructed. They've been challenged. Someone's maybe even said, you know, hey, you need to manage your life a little better. Here's some tools. Here's what the Bible says. Here's what God says. And their response is nothing. They are called to be faithful and wise stewards, but they are failing to connect God's instructions with actual practice in their life. And in doing so, they're sinning by their lack of planning, by maybe even their laziness, he says. And so they are wholly unprepared when the master comes back. Praise God, this, the master for these people, he's graceful to them and says, okay, I'm not casting you out of the house, but you're going to have a severe beating. All right, what does that look like? What that means is that when we fail to plan or, or we are lazy or are not good stewards of our resources, there are actual painful, intentional consequences for that. You spend any time reading the book of Proverbs and over and over, God says things like, he says, if... Um, He says things like, everyone who's hasty, meaning everyone who doesn't plan, comes only to poverty. And he says, the sluggard, I love that word, we have a lot of slugs in the northwest. Um, The sluggard, he says, the lazy, craves and gets nothing. I want to be clear, not everyone that is in poverty is lazy or has failed to plan. But God is explicitly clear that if you are lazy, when you are lazy, when you fail to plan, when you fail to manage, when you fail to steward, there are real painful consequences. Sometimes immediately, 
Sometimes it takes years or, or, or decades for these consequences to, to finally hit home. I know several people who have, who have struggled with their finances or, or, or not followed the letter of the law when it comes to, comes to taxes or comes to, to a variety of credit issues, and now they're at the place where they've lost their business or they're going to lose their home. And in some sense, they start to lose a piece of their identity. That is not what God intends for us. He wants us to be wise and faithful stewards. So he comes to the last servant, and he says, this last servant is, is ignorant. They're just, they're just ignorant. They, they, they don't know the master's instruction. They haven't been told. Maybe they're, they're a new believer who just doesn't know what God's word has to say about how we manage our stuff. Or maybe they didn't have great parents that helped them budget or plan or things. They're just ignorant. They just don't know. And God says he's gracious. He says, I love you in your stupidity. That's good news for people like me. I hope it's news for, good news for you. He loves us even when we're stupid, right? But he even loves us enough to say, okay, it's fine for you to start out ignorant and start out stupid, but I love you enough to give you wisdom and not let you stay ignorant anymore. He says, I love this, in James 1 he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. We just have to have a little humility to say, all right, I'm just, I'm just ignorant when it comes to how to manage my money or manage my family or manage my time, and I need somebody to help me. And, and by God's grace, we have resources. We have people here that will counsel you. We have books to read. We have podcasts to listen to. There's radio shows to listen to. There's spreadsheets we can send you. There are myriad of resources. If you're just humble enough to say, I need help, we even love you enough that we'll walk with you through it too. Ignorance, my friends, is not bliss. It's painful. Because we end up doing things like when you're 13, Columbia House comes to your door and you start getting 45 Creed CDs and you're all excited about it and then you realize you have $30 of Alanis Morissette every month from there on out. It's horrible, right? That's ignorance. We can move beyond that. That first credit card you got when you were in college because they gave you a T-shirt, right? Um, So I want you to have this understanding, though, the the big idea that, that... Planning, and I know some of you aren't the planner or the budgeter for your family, but all of you should care enough to to own it in some way. We budget for joy. We plan for joy. Because the reality is, having no plan, no intentionality, is not freedom. It's just planning for future slavery as our lives and our joy get choked out over financial and life structural concerns because we just haven't, haven't planned for any of this. It's painful. It may feel restrictive to follow God's guidelines in these areas, but he ultimately does that so that we can have more freedom and more joy. So if you've sinned in how you've used your life or how you've used your finances, by God's grace, He can cover that, and by his wisdom, we have opportunities to move beyond that. But again, you have to be humble and teachable. So we'll close now by by looking at the fact that while God was intentional about being with us, and he's called us to be intentional stewards of what he has, we'll close looking at Jesus and seeing that that God is intentional and that his plan is is manifest and and made known through Jesus and, and that Jesus suffered intentionally. Like I said, we're in Advent right now, which is a celebration of of the planned arrival of Jesus, the God-man. And Jesus' plan was to actually come off this glorious throne in heaven to go be a baby in a manger on earth, which probably felt a little risky with a a single teenage mom and a a blue-collar dad. But I think it's easy for us as Christians even, especially during Advent, to just get so excited about the arrival of little baby Jesus that we forget why little baby Jesus came. And he came to, to live this perfect life of stewardship. Jesus stewarded every aspect of his life perfectly and without sin. And then he plans to suffer. If your worship of Jesus 
begins and ends at Christmas, you're going to fail to see that Jesus was planning to suffer on our behalf because Christmas is only great because it points us to Good Friday where Jesus is up on the cross paying the debt of our sin and mismanagement of our lives. And it's glorious because it moves to Easter where Jesus gets out of the tomb and is alive and says, you are no longer slave to the consequences of your poor stewardship, but you have an opportunity to live in newness of life following Jesus as a disciple. And so we saw earlier that Isaiah prophesied 700 years before Jesus this plan of of the Christ child's birth in, in Isaiah 53 Take some time, read the details of how Jesus says, I'm coming as a man of sorrows to bear the brokenness of the world and the rebellion of the world to to establish and reestablish peace between God and his people. It was a plan from the beginning. We're going to close with with Ephesians 1, 3 through 10. If you would, turn there with me. Because by God's grace, we've talked a lot about stewardship and being God's servant. I don't want us to get um, depressed or, or, or feel uh, burdened necessarily uh, by, by just worshiping God as a servant. The reality is he adopts us into his family as a son and daughter. We are so much more to him as a servant. It was his plan. Ephesians 1, starting verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, his plan, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he's blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. If you've not met Jesus yet, you have to understand that before the foundations of the world, he said, I'm going to adopt you into my family. His plan, God's plan, was for you to be here today to hear this good news of the gospel. And so it's now our time to respond to God's intentionality by intentionally responding. And so I'm going to pray, confessing sin and praising his mercy and his love for us in Christ. We're going to come forward Maybe some of you for the first time to these tables up here to take communion, to see that and be reminded intentionally that Jesus suffered by shedding his blood on the cross by taking the cup. That Jesus suffered intentionally by having his body broken with the bread. If you love Jesus, if you you know and live in the fact that he's loved you, we respond with our tithes and offerings, not out of guilt, because we're not measuring up in our minds and not out of expectation that he's going to give us a thousand-fold blessing, right? We're going to give in a response to the fact that he's already given to us so graciously, intentionally, generously, volitionally, and enthusiastically. And then we are going to sing. The band's going to be here. We are going to sing in celebration of the unchanging God who was and is and is to come back. Lord, You intentionally loved us from before the foundations of the world. And Lord, that maybe some of us for the first time today would come forward and worship you through the taking of communion.